0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. I grew up thinking and being taught, you can't be a loser. You can't be last place. You have to win. You have to be great. And then today we've, we've coined this phrase, the GOAT. The greatest of all time. And we like to argue, who, who's the greatest of all time? And it's always who has won the most. And so you have Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer of all time. You have Tom Brady, the greatest cheater of all time. <laughs> that one's for Caleb. He's a big Tom Brady fan. <laughs> to win is to be the goat. To lose is to be the rotten egg. Gross. Nobody wants to be the rotten egg except Jesus. And so Jesus is going to say this morning, listen, you want to be great in my kingdom? Here's what you do. Be the rotten egg. And that's our big, our big idea this morning. There is greatness in the rotten egg. There is kingdom of heaven greatness in the rotten egg. Because here we're going to get again, we're used to this, a kind of series of incidents, little vignettes. And they're going to show us that what is great in the kingdom of God is dependence, service, humility, and sacrifice. That's what's great in the kingdom of God. So chapter 9 is going to start with a a famous scene, the scene of the transfiguration. Y'all, it is great. There's so much there. There's like five sermons worth of material there. I encourage you this week in your personal study, go read the transfiguration. It is full of the Old Testament. It's like the whole Testament has been building to this. But we'll just summarize this morning. The transfiguration is a glimpse of glorification. So when Jesus said his path is through death to new life, this is the new life. This is a little snapshot of what that new life will look like. This is the future that's going to make it all worth it right here. And they get to see a little glimpse of it. And so uh, everyone's there. Peter, James, and John are there. Moses, Elijah, Jesus is there. The Father's there. And everyone's like glowing in the dark. They're all shining with God's glory. And they're communing with Jesus in a way that Moses never could. Unveiled. Seeing him in his true glory. And y'all, Peter loves it. He loves it. And you can't blame him. Let's face it. Peter's been struggling down off the mountain. He's he's had a rough time of it. And so he's thinking, you know what? Man, these needy crowds aren't here anymore. Uh, The Pharisees, the Romans aren't here up here threatening us. I don't get called Satan up here. This is great. We need to stay right here. This is what I was meant for. And Jesus says, you're right. It's what you were meant for. Just not yet. See, this. This is just a glimpse, but Jesus is going to show them that the the real path to greatness, it's not just hiking up a little mountain. The real path to greatness is different than you think. And so they come down off the mountain and we get an episode of something that nobody wants right from the transfiguration into an episode of failure. Peter, James, and John, so they were the only disciples that they got the special invitation to come up. They come down, they join the other disciples, and it's like all the characters from the book of Mark are all there in one place. You got the disciples, the crowds are there, the scribes are there all trying to stir up trouble, and everyone is mad. They're all arguing with each other. And Jesus asks, wow, what's going on? And this one lone father steps up, and he tells him, you know, I've, I've got a child who's been possessed by a demon who who gives him violent, life-threatening seizures. And he had brought his son to his disciples, and the disciples were not able to heal him. So yeah, we got a scene packed, jam-packed with struggle here. I'm just going to list the struggles that I see and, and see what you can identify with. There's disappointment. Can you imagine the dad? All these disciples have been going around, he's been going down to heal all these people, and, and you're the one whose son doesn't get healed. And now what do you do? There's ministry failure. The disciples want to help. They're trying to help, but they can't. They can't help this person. There's all kinds of relational conflict. Everyone's arguing. They're probably blaming each other. I can imagine Peter, James, and John show up another other and are like, oh, glad y'all can make it now. And they're like, well, let me tell you, here's what we would have done. Let me tell you what to do. There's just straight up evil forces that are inflicting pain and suffering. And then there's suffering. Physical suffering, great physical suffering from the son. We find out he's, he's been suffering like this from early childhood. And these convulsions are very violent. There's the emotional suffering. Can you imagine being his parents? Why is Jesus taking them into this? Why don't they just stay up there? Here's why Jesus is taking them into the scene of struggle. To the degree you can recognize your own insufficiency, you'll find hope. That's what he's trying to show them. So he tells us what the disciples' problem was. In verse 28 and 29, he says this. It says, when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So you mean to tell me they were trying to cast out a demon without even praying? That's exactly what they were doing. See, the disciples, they they had this conception of Jesus that he was going to be their guru for a little while. He was going to teach them. He was going to train them. He was going to go with them. But then eventually, they would graduate where they could do all of this on their own. And Jesus is showing them, listen, when you follow me, you never graduate beyond dependence. Never. Think about what is prayer? Prayer is calling for help because I can't do this on my own. It's sending out the back signal, it's sending out the SOS. I I don't have what I need, so I need to talk to God about it. You've probably all seen some version of this same scene in every war movie where there's a group of soldiers facing an enemy that's either uh, got them too outnumbered or they're too well entrenched, and what do they do? They get in that walkie-talkie, and they call in an airstrike. And they're saying, we don't have the artillery to take these guys down. Hey, helicopters and jets. Why don't y'all take them down for us? That's what they're doing. We find out the disciples never made that call. They never made the call. They were trying to do it on their own. Why would they do that? Well, you may remember earlier on, they had been sent out without Jesus in pairs, and they had great ministry success. They had done this before. They had cast out demons before. They're full of self-confidence thinking, hey, we got this. And they expected to be able to do it again. But here's what they missed. In the past, you know how many demons they cast out? Zero. They forgot that the whole time it was Jesus doing it through them. They can't cast out a single demon on their own. And so I think Jesus is trying to show them. He's trying to remind us to find kingdom greatness. You have to understand you are insufficient. You are totally dependent on him. Now, that's the opposite of what all the daytime talk shows will tell you. They'll tell you, you're enough. You have what it takes. But that is a trap. That is a path to death. Jesus says, you were created to be dependent on me. I saw a news story just yesterday. You've probably seen these different self-driving autonomous cars they have. This new story was about them uh, coming up with self-driving and autonomous 18-wheelers, which makes me nervous. It's one of our newest, greatest technological advances where, you know, these tech companies, they they make a car, they build a car so that it can operate without a driver. And so all they do is they got to manufacture it and then they plug in the right code and the right information. And and after they plug in the right information, they set them free to be self-driving and autonomous. And sometimes we think that's how Jesus made us. You know, yeah, he built us. And then he gives us the right instructions, the right code, the right information. Maybe that's why we come to church. Okay, just give me the right information. And after I have the right information, I'll walk out the doors driverless and autonomous. Well, I would invite you to go online and read about all the crashes involving these so-called self-driving cars. So you were designed to have God in the driver's seat all the time. And the moment you try to become self-driving and autonomous, you're heading for a crash. True kingdom greatness is dependence on Jesus. And then we're going to say dependence, y'all, even for our faith even for the faith to believe. So let's rewind a little bit. And I want, to, want us to look at this father's interaction with Jesus because it's so good. Verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And yet has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. This, men and women, this is a picture of dependence. He is doing the exact opposite of what the disciples were doing. He is coming to Jesus for help and saying, this is beyond my ability. It all hinges on if you can. And Jesus in this interaction, now Jesus, he is healing the dad every bit as much as he is healing the child. He repeats the father's own word. He says, you're right. It all hinges on if I can. You are rightfully dependent on me. Now, in our world, the prosperity gospel loves to quote the end of verse 23 and turn it back on us. You know, if we conjure up strong enough faith, then God does whatever we want. But all that that makes faith a work. It's something that we do, and then we feel entitled to God for things, based on how great our faith is. So so because I believe so strongly, now God owes it to me to do this thing. Well, y'all, that makes God dependent on us, not us dependent on God. And if that's true, if that's the point of this passage, then we would expect this proclamation of great faith, maybe a, a poem, an, a hymn, an oracle of faith from the dad. But that's not what we get. We get verse 24, yeah, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? Yo, this all this is beautiful. This is real life. I think this is one of the greatest lines anyone's ever said to Jesus. And I want you to notice, he he didn't mumble it. He didn't even just say it. He cried out, this is the desperation of dependence. I need you, Jesus. This is calling in reinforcements because you can't change your own heart. You want to believe more than you can make your own heart believe. See, Jesus is showing us here true greatness. It's not even in having the strongest most mature, unquestioning faith. It is in recognizing the weakness of your faith sometimes. It's in having humility to come to Jesus and say, will you help me? I need help not just out here. I need, I need help with this heart thing too. And Jesus responds to this man's utter dependence by healing his son. I like the way Alan Cole, the commentator, put it. He said, the Father cries for help, honestly confessing the poverty of his faith. And Jesus answers, not according to the poverty of the man's faith, but according to the riches of his grace. See, the greatness isn't in you, it's in him. And so the greatest thing you and I can do is be dependent on him and his grace. And the next Jesus reminds them that the reason we can be dependent on him ultimately is because he is the one who will pay the price for sin and defeat death. And so, in the next verses, we get the second prediction from Jesus of his suffering, death, and resurrection. He is clear, he is explicit. This isn't a parable that's hard to understand. I mean, he could not be any more clear, but they don't understand, it says. He says they don't get it. And I think it's not that they didn't understand the facts, they understood the words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth, okay? It just didn't fit their idea of greatness. It didn't fit their idea of the kingdom coming that they had. See, they still can't see how their greatest hope was being accomplished when things looked the worst. Or how life can come through a cross. They still didn't get it. But it's okay. Jesus is patient. He's, in fact, he's going to predict his own suffering death a third time, we'll see. And for now, he's going to paint a picture for them. Jesus is going to show kingdom greatness is found in service. Let's pick it back up in verse 33. It says, And they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve. He said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all last, and servant of all. And he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, I just feel sorry for the disciples at this point. I mean, it's almost getting comical. So Jesus very clearly says, Me, God, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. And they together think, now's the time. Now's the perfect time for us to rank each other. Let's rank each other from 1 to 12 on who's the greatest. It feels like the perfect time to do this. And they're so busted. Jesus is like, okay, what what y'all been talking about? Just curious. You know, you hardly blame them. The last disciple that spoke up got called Satan. So this one, they're playing like a silent game of not it. No one wants to touch this one. And we think, you know, how... How is this even possible? Well, partially, we got to understand they had a little bit different culture than us. And so they lived in what's called an honor culture. And there's still lots of honor cultures around most of Asia is this way. Most of the Middle East is this way. So in an honor culture, life is all about your social standing. So in your social standing, it's all determined by, it's not just determined by you, it's determined by your affiliation with different social groups. Maybe that's your family. Maybe that's your company. Maybe that's the state. Maybe that's your friendships. Maybe it's a political party. For us, for us in our kind of achievement, individualistic culture, for us, greatness is in accomplishment. Doesn't matter who your parents are, where you came from, it is an accomplishment. For them, it's honor. It's good standing. That's success for them. For us, failure is a lack of success. For them, it's shame. Shame is the greatest failure than you can experience. So for us, we may have a hero like the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger can be a hero for us. For them, the Lone Ranger is just someone who has been shamed and ostracized from the community. That's what that is. So in an honor culture, you are always aware of your position in the pecking order. And that's what tells you how to operate. Probably the closest example we have is the military. So a soldier behaves honorably by knowing their rank in the whole system and performing his assigned duties with his rank. And so you don't want a soldier going rogue and being a maverick. You don't want a lieutenant acting like a captain. Everyone needs to know their rank so they know how to behave. Now remember, Peter, James, and John got the special invitation to the transfiguration. So most likely what is happening here, it's very possible saying, okay, Now that shows we are part of the upper rank now. We know the pecking order. So you got Jesus, then you got us. We're like the second tier. And then you guys, you are the third tier. And they could not be more missing the point. So in verse 35, Jesus tells them, listen, it's not about where you rank in the pecking order. This is the key to greatness. You want the key to greatness in my kingdom? Be last. Be the rotten egg. Give yourself the lowest rank. And the point isn't shame, you see, the point here is service. You became come a servant to everyone but you. He's saying, Be like me. Even your general came not to be served, but to serve. And then he grabs the person that they would have all agreed had the lowest rank of all, a child. And he pulls the child close to him. Now, understand, our culture is more child centric. They back then they loved their children just like we do. They thought their children were cute, just like we do. But in the social order, in their honor culture, children were on the lowest social rung. And so Jesus is saying, This is we can all agree, this is the last and the least of people in our society. That's what he's saying. And what do you do with the last and the least? He says, you receive them. Now, this this word it means to greet gladly, and to honor. It's the same word for a reception or a banquet. So if you had some person of honor you, and you, they were coming over to your house, you may you would have a banquet for them. You would receive them warmly and gladly and with honor. And it's also the same word in the Greek Old Testament used for the way that God receives offerings he is pleased with. That's what Jesus is telling these guys is, the way you want God to receive you, that's how you should receive the last and the least. Now, I think for us, as I hear our voices of our children up there, this means, you know what? Our children ought to love church. They must be received here. I know, we hear that voice I know, every Sunday. If, I don't know if y'all can hear it over here. I invite you one Sunday, come sit in this section, and you will hear our preschoolers through that window right there. And I want us to all be clear on what that sound is. That sound is not a distraction. It is not an interruption to the real worship going on here. That is the last and the least being received in Jesus' name. See, we cannot, the picture painting is Jesus with this word is, we cannot expect Jesus to receive our worship in here if we aren't receiving the last and the least out there. That's what he's saying. And notice the chain. Whoever receives a child, you're not just receiving the child. You're receiving me, and you're receiving the Father who sent me. Jesus is saying the real way to the Mount of Transfiguration, to Jesus in his glory, is through serving others, the least and the last. And, you know, I think this is something we can all get completely backwards. Some of us, we, we try to get to Jesus through the mountaintop experiences. The warm fuzzies, you know, singing louder, getting the feeling as best we can, just me and Jesus. But Jesus is saying, the way to me is through serving others, which means sometimes we we may need to stop singing and start serving. The less important they are, the less they can do for you, the better. I've seen this in this church. I got an email just a couple weeks ago from someone. had a question about the sermon during the week, and they didn't get to hear the sermon because they were serving in our nursery. Right now, this very hour, all I could think was, you know, that's the sermon. That's what Jesus is trying to help us understand. We had another situation just this morning. Somebody who I'm sure just was looking forward to some adult conversation had a need upstairs, and they hop right in. Y'all, you know, this is people living what Jesus is trying to teach. These people have figured out the kingdom comes through serving the last and the least. That's not how I think it comes all the time. That's not how the disciples thought it was going to come. That's the reason the disciples are arguing is because they think it's just about them and Jesus. How do, how do I rank with Jesus? And Jesus, if he, he may be the general, but then I get to be the captain. If, if I have a high enough rank that it's me and him can have this special relationship. And Jesus is saying, you want to get closer to me? Go down the rank, not up the rank. That's how you get closer to me. But isn't it true? y'all? This is, this is our hearts. This is the sin in our hearts. That sometimes, even in our service, we can make it mostly about us. The heart behind our service, Jesus says next, needs to be one of humility. Kingdom, greatness comes through humility. Verse 38, let's pick it up. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will be, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now this is the first time we hear from John in the book of Mark. And John, he's he's watched Peter, he's watched all these other guys put their foot in their mouth and he's kept quiet. But now he speaks up because he is certain he is helping the cause. He thinks he is actually doing some quality control with this Jesus' kingdom thing. What he is actually doing is exhibiting spiritual snobbery. you see his complaint? Notice in verse 38, hey, this guy, yeah, he's doing stuff, but he's not following us. He didn't say, he's not complaining that the guy's not following Jesus. He's saying he's not following us and our little group here. He's saying, you know what, this guy, he's not part of the club. We haven't vetted him. He, he's breaking our protocols. He's operating outside of our hierarchy and ranking that we figured out along the road. And Jesus corrects John, and he categorizes the whole world as binary, in or out. That's all there is. You are for or against me, not us, John, me. See, our, we've said this before, our whole faith, all of it depends on just two words, in Christ. That's it. And if you are in Christ, everyone has everything. There's no levels, there's no ranks, you've got to work up the order and do this. No, no, you get it all as a gift to you. And that sounds great, that sounds wonderful, until I want to compare myself to somebody else. You know? And I, I want to be winning a little more, maybe. Or here, here's how my heart works. You know, I'll say, yeah, that, you know, that's fine for them to do whatever they want. But I at least want it acknowledged that I get it more than they do. You know, like they, they don't really get it like I do. Spiritual pride is still pride. And kingdom greatness is found in humility. And so Jesus, he paints this amazing picture of humility in verse 41. Not in great acts like exorcisms, but in humble ones, like giving a glass of water. You think giving a glass of water—that's not impressive. Anyone can do that. It's just this small, humble act of service. You can do. Anyone can do it to anyone. And I think Jesus is saying, "Yeah, yeah, anyone can, but not everyone will." He's saying again, greatness is found in this humility, but we often miss it because we are looking for the extraordinary. I want to ask you this morning, who in your life, who that God has put in front of you, can you just bring a glass of water to? Not maybe a literal glass of water, but maybe a metaphorical glass of water. Just a a simple, a common act of service, an encouraging word, offering to help in some simple way. What situation, what person has God put in front of you maybe in this week ahead that, listen, you can't fix it all. You can't magically heal them. You, you, You can't do all that stuff, but in some small, humble way. You can just bring them a cup of water. You know, but if I find myself asking, why don't I do that more? You know? Isn't it true that sometimes what keeps us from humble service is we are waiting for what's more impressive? You know? So we're tuned into all the big issues. You know, we'll rant, we'll rail about all, all that's going on in the world and all the big problems. And then we'll go to the conferences, and read the books, and listen to the podcasts, we'll, you know, all of the big things. And not someone ask us to do something simple? Someone just says, hey, out of the 720 hours in your month, will you give two to just spend some time with some children? Now, often, me, my reaction is, you know what? I got more important things to do. Or, you know, well, that, that's not really big enough to make a difference. Now, maybe it would be different if there were going to be exorcisms or altar calls or TV cameras. You know, that, that would feel big and impressive and feel important. But when it's unimpressive or awkward or just mundane, we, we think it's too humble for kingdom greatness. And Jesus is saying we have it completely backwards. He is saying his kingdom comes through humble acts of service. Now, what happens if we don't choose this, this path to kingdom greatness? If we don't decide to follow him? I mean, do we just get a little less applause and one less plaque on the wall? I mean, what, what, what's the big deal? In the end of this chapter, Jesus is going to show us that the path you choose is deadly serious. We are talking about your eternal soul here. So let's pick it up in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Oh, happy day. No one's written a worship song about that yet. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What's happening here? So now remember, Jesus is making this binary. So he's talked about the reward of, of he brought the child close. He's talking about the reward of receiving a little one. He's saying, listen, the, the opposite of kingdom greatness, it's not neutrality. It's eternal judgment. The opposite of great reward is great loss. In this language, It is supposed to startle us. It's supposed to make us squirm and feel unsettled and uncomfortable. It's supposed to be shocking language. Think of it this way. In the same way the transfiguration was to give us a glimpse of glory, this is meant to give us a glimpse of judgment. He's saying here, this is so serious that anything that hinders you from following me Deal with it ruthlessly, drastically, decisively. So we've set up a cutting station in the lobby for after the... No, we're not doing that. There's a key word here. If. He repeats it many times. If. If your hand, foot, eye cause you to sin. Men and women, is your hand, foot, eye is what caused you to sin? Let me ask you this If you cut your hand off, are you still going to sin? Yeah. If you cut one eye out, are you still going to sin? Yes. Where's the sin? Yeah, exactly. It's right in our hearts. Sin is like a tumor in your heart, and you have to cut it out. You don't want to wait around. You don't hope it'll go away. In fact, we deal so ruthlessly with cancer that we poison the rest of our bodies just to kill that cancer. That is sin In our hearts, and we've said it before, you cannot follow Jesus. You cannot get to heaven with the heart you were born with. It is tainted with sin, and so you need a new one. How? How do we get a new heart? Verse 49 and 50 is the answer. It is sacrifice. His kingdom greatness comes through sacrifice. Now, these two verses are confusing. Uh, One commentator said there's as many as 15 possible explanations for what Jesus meant here. So we'll just go through 12 of them. No, I'll tell you what I think it means, but I'm gonna warn you, it's a little complicated. Track with me, okay? It helps to understand that Mark here is mixing metaphors. So there are two, he's gonna talk about fire. He means two different things. There are two kinds of fire. There is fire of judgment and there is fire of sacrifice. And this deal is either or. You can't have both. You got to choose your fire. And in verse 49, it talks about, you know, salt being burned in the fire. This, that goes back to Leviticus 2, where it's giving the process for grain offerings in the Old Testament. So these grain offerings were burned in fire as a sacrifice to God. But before you did that, it said it t- told them, sprinkle on your grain offerings the salt of the covenant. And so you get the picture here, right? Bring in the grain offering, before you, right before you put it in the fire to be burned, you sprinkle some salt on it. What, what's that a picture of? God is teaching them, listen, as you go to make this offering, remember, you are not impressing God. This is only possible because of the covenant relationship that God started with you before you sacrificed and offered him anything. It's about that covenant relate, uh, the covenant relationship that God has given you. And so Mark is using that now to say, hey, this is the fire of sacrifice that Jesus started in you, and you didn't even make the sacrifice. The whole sacrificial system points to Jesus. It's his sacrifice that came because of his covenant relationship with us. And so we've said, Mark 10, 45, this is the key summary of everything Mark wants us to know about Jesus. And I've asked you all to memorize it. Let's let's say it out loud. Say it with me. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is giving his life as a ransom for you. Jesus is the sacrifice burned in the fire. It's not your sacrifice. He sacrificed his life so you don't have to chop off any limbs or gouge out any eyes, is what he's saying. And his sacrifice cuts out the sin in our hearts. But it can't just be factually true. It can't just be true out there. It has to be received by faith. And this is the second verse I'm asking us all to memorize. So that was, the first verse was who Jesus is. How do we respond? What do we do in light of who Jesus is? That's Mark 1.15. Let's read it together. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel. That's all God wants from us. Repent and believe. That's faith. And this is where the salt comes in. So there's two fires, judgment or the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's either or. There's two salts. The salt is both and. You can't have one without the other. So we've already talked about the salt of the covenant that that comes into our hearts. It cuts out the cancer. And then in verse 50, he's saying that transforms us into the salt of the earth. And then we get the Matthew 5 version of salt. And he says, we are at peace with one another. Now, you may remember, beginning of the chapter, they're all arguing with each other. They're all mad at each other. Jesus is saying the only way to end the competition for greatness, this is it, is when the salt of our relationship with him, comes into our hearts, and it transforms us into the salt of the earth. That's the only way. He's saying, once again, we see that we are totally dependent on Jesus Christ, and our relationship with God, and our relationships with one another. Without that, there is no peace. You know, I I think there's no way to, to hide the fact that Jesus here, he's presenting a way of living with one another and experiencing him that's totally counterintuitive the way we normally think. And so here, here's how I'd summarize what he's trying to teach us in this chapter. Really just two things. Here's the first. In Jesus' kingdom, all the seesaws are stuck upside down. You know, remember playing seesaw when you were a kid? And the whole point getting the seesaw is you want to go up and you want to jump up. And as you do, that other person goes down And then, uh uh-oh, you start to go down and you kick as hard as you can to get back up. Jesus is introducing a new way of being on the seesaw. And it's just stay down. Fight to stay down and keep the other person up. That's what a kingdom person looks like. Now, to do this, we have to get over the notion that our relationship with Jesus is just a private matter. It's not. I don't know if you've noticed, but all forms of kingdom greatness that he has presented to us, all of them, everyone, involve other people. It only involves you in the sense that you're the one who serves and sacrifices. The second thing I'd say in summary is this. For those who are struggling with faith, remember the father in the story I think as Jesus, is he's teaching this, he, the last thing he wants us to do is walk out those doors full of pride and gusto. Nothing can challenge my faith. I'm gonna have the greatest faith ever. No, no, no. If you're struggling with faith, Jesus is speaking to you through his word. You can pray that same prayer. Just help my unbelief. I'm dependent on you, Jesus. When you, I can't change my own heart. I wanna believe. Would you help my unbelief? See, Jesus doesn't want you to even try to follow him without being dependent on him. We've said, all God wants from us is faith. That's it. Just repent and believe. But Jesus is showing us that none of us will ever choose that on their own. Anytime any of us put our faith in him, that is a miracle in our hearts. It's more than you can do for yourself. So this morning, you walk out those doors, enjoying your spring break, bust out that walkie-talkie. Call in for help when you need it. Ask for faith.